0: Amen. Man, it's good to worship with y'all this morning. Uh, Good morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm the executive pastor here. I wanted to remind you of something right off the bat. No matter what happens to you, no matter what you do, no matter what you don't do, no matter what's done to you, nothing will ever change the fact that you are created in the image of God, you bear His image, and you are deeply loved by God. That gives you immense value. And I think what we know as a church is just how easy it is to forget that. And uh, like those are core truths that we are trying to live out of more and more. Um, and it's just so easy to get caught up in other stuff and just totally forget that. But our prayer for you is our prayer for me, prayer for everyone. is just that we would increasingly live out of who God created us to be. So I am so glad that you're here with us. Uh, We're in a series, this is our third week in Angry Jesus. Angry Jesus Part 3. Like that is the summer blockbuster that needs to be made, right? This time it's personal. (laughs) I don't know what that means. Um, I I hope you've discovered this. Uh, We've been looking at these moments in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus gets angry and he raises his voice a little bit. And I hope you've discovered that Jesus' anger is really nothing like ours. Uh, The reality for most of us, at least this is true for me, when I get angry, usually it is tied to some personal offense. Someone does something and it offends me, and so I get angry. That really was never the case for Jesus. Almost every single time for Jesus when he raises his voice, it's out of his deep love for somebody else. It's not because he's like personally offended. The other thing that is really different than us is Jesus never loses control. He never like snaps and just loses his temper, but he's very strategic. And you see like the the wisdom with which he deploys his anger and raises his voice in these situations to get some effect. I find that really comforting. When we talk about uh, Jesus, we know this, Uh, the Bible says in Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, meaning that he is God, everything he is, God is. And so this idea that Jesus has anger, but it's not really like ours, that's really comforting to me. I mean, we recognize this, that Jesus got so so in control of his anger that even with his anger towards our sin, God, in total control, chose to pour his anger out upon himself on the cross, which is astounding. This is a doctrine we call propitiation, but it just means this, that God has emptied his anger upon himself, and so he's able to relate to you and I with nothing but love. You remember how we started this series with this picture of like a, a dad on a road trip uh, who's just had it with the kids in the back seat and he's yelling, don't make me pull this car over. Um, and we ask, is that God? Is he just so angry at us? And the answer is no. Uh, the, the, in fact, what we discover with God, the most surprising thing of all is that he has dealt with his anger and he is climbing into the back seat to be with us. And that's pretty amazing. That's pretty great, but as great as that is, we're also realizing that sometimes it's a little uncomfortable. Like we talked about this a lot last week, that Jesus, he he really wants to get past our de- defenses and touch those parts of our heart that we are most interested in protecting, and he's persistent about that, and it can be a little uncomfortable. There's an author I really like, and uh, she was speaking at a seminary, and there was a cute question and answer session at the end, a young seminary student stood up and asked her, what do you do to personally get close to God? And without thinking, she said something true instead of something spiritual. Have you ever done that? You'd like to say the honest truth instead of something like the right answer you're supposed to say. So she says, what do you do personally to get close to God? And she just blurted out, ugh, nothing. That sounds like a horrible idea. Half the time, I'm just trying to get God to leave me alone, She goes on to say, every time I get close to him, he makes me love someone I don't even like or give away more of my money or or give up some idea or dream that's really important to me. That's what she said. Now, whether you agree with all of that or not, I bet if you have journeyed with God for any length of time, you know kind of what she's talking about. There is something about God that is so disruptive, isn't there? Like there's just something about God. And you know, if you are the sort of person who really values the status quo in your life, you just want things to be nice and steady, sometimes God's really uncomfortable to be around. There's just something about him that's disruptive. And when we're reading these stories about Jesus' anger, man, it's clear that was true about Jesus too. Jesus was a little disruptive. And even the people who loved him, even the people who he loved, like he turned their lives upside down. And listen, God loves you so much, God loves you so much, but we should never make the mistake of thinking that that means for us that he wants to maintain the status quo in our lives, because he doesn't. He's a little disruptive, and at times it's uncomfortable. Now today, we are going to talk about the big one like the story that probably you thought of when you heard the title angry Jesus. Like this is the main story and what what we're going to see with Jesus in the temple is he is going to embody this reality of God that is just so disruptive and he is going to do it in the most public of ways. So if you have a Bible, actually I'd love it if you find a Bible, you can probably get one on your device and find Matthew chapter 21 I'm going to use the English Standard Version as I have been. Uh, This is probably a story that you're familiar with, maybe you've heard about it. Um, But I want to give us a little bit of background because we need to understand just how disruptive he's being here. So let me tell you a story that's kind of the background to what we're going to see Jesus do. Once upon a time, there was a king. Um, And this was a new king, like he was brand new king and all the people in the kingdom, they were pretty excited about this guy because the old king, not so great. So the new king, he's amazing. He's smart. He's kind. He's good at military stuff. Everything you would want in a king, that's this guy. So the time came for this king to pick a capital city. And everybody wanted him to pick their city because he's a new king. Everyone's real optimistic and he's excited, but he's a smart king. And he realizes that if he picks one city over another, it's going to alienate some people. So instead, what he decides to do is he says, I'm going to attack my enemy city. There was an enemy city right on a hill in the middle of his kingdom. He says, I'm going to attack this city so I don't have to pick from all of my subjects. And I'm going to overthrow the city and establish my capital in this new city. So that's what he does. He takes his army and he surrounds the city. Now the city has never before been conquered. They have these really high walls and the the inhabitants of the city, they're not really scared. In fact, they're so confident that they sent a message to the king that says this. They say, we are going to let the blind and the lame guard our walls. And even though they can't see and can't walk, they still will defeat you. You will never conquer us. That was a message they sent to this guy. Now, as you can imagine, the king didn't like that. I mean, that hurt his pride. That's part of being a king is you have pride. And so he got a little bit angry. But he knew that probably what they were saying was true, that the walls were impossible to kind of uh, overthrow. And so he knew that probably wasn't going to happen. They probably were right. But he also knew this, that this city got their water from a spring deep inside the mountain and there was a tunnel leading down to that spring and it was left virtually unguarded. So he takes his men, and they sneak up that tunnel, and they overthrow the city, and he establishes it as his new capital. Only, he can't get out of his mind what the inhabitants of the city said. Like, it just bugs him. It's like, they were so disrespectful to me. And he's proud, and he's prideful, which is part of being a king. And so he, he, he says, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make my first decree from this new city that no blind or lame person is ever allowed in my capital city. That's weird, right? why am I telling you this story? If you're a Bible nerd like me, you know this story comes from the Old Testament. The king is actually King David and the city is actually Jerusalem. This is why Jerusalem is called the city of David is because this is, he was the first king to establish it as his capital city and for a thousand years, it was the center of God's people on earth and it was the capital of the nation of Israel. And this like little asterisk, this little unfair discrimination against people with disabilities was just kind of like a footnote because of the wounded pride of Israel's most famous king it's a weird story uh, there's a lot of weird stuff in the bible I don't know if you know that there's a lot of weird stuff in the bible like I, I do this a lot while I read the bible and I'm like was there anyone like me around back then because I think I would have raised my hand and said hey man David your highness um, why are you picking on these people it's not like they said this to you. It was the inhabitants of the city. We killed them all. Why, like, why make this law? That just seems mean. But clearly there was no one like me in the Bible. Um, maybe they didn't survive. I don't know. Um, because the Bible, it, like, it, you read the story. It, it just tells the story and then it moves on to the next part. And there's no like explanation. There's no challenge of this. Until a thousand years later. Jesus sits on a donkey and he rides up this hill into that exact same city and he walks to the middle of the city and he stands in the temple, the center of God's presence here on earth and he looks around at everything that he sees and he knows the history, he knows what has gone on there and he decides that he is about to disrupt 1,000 years of spiritual tradition. Look at what happens, verse 12 of Matthew chapter 21. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, Jesus is quoting an Old Testament book here, Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, would have been very famous in Jesus' day. Everyone would have been familiar with this passage. What the verse actually says is, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That part's very important, and everyone would have known that part. Everyone would have known Jesus was quoting that. See, Jesus had this crazy belief that God was not just for certain peoples, the God was for everyone. And, you know, he even picked close friends. He picked followers, like the sort of people who had bad past, the sort of people who would have thought, you know, maybe this whole God thing isn't for me. They probably would have been told, hey, this whole God thing is not for you. Look at you. And Jesus sought those people out. Matthew, the guy who's writing the story, was one of those people. And Jesus was clearly for all peoples, and he always had this way of finding people like that and including them. That really caused a lot of conflict with the religious leaders. See, just like David, he bans the blind and the lame from the city, like for no good reason. The religious leaders of the day, they were always doing that same sort of thing, as they were looking for people who they thought God would find undesirable. And they were finding ways to exclude them from this whole story of God. And one of the ways that they did that, specifically in the temple, had to do with this whole finances thing and the whole money thing. See, everyone who went to the temple had to have a sacrifice. And you could buy your sacrifice at the temple, but you couldn't use like the common Roman currency. So you had to exchange it for temple currency. And if there was a small fee associated with that, hey, we got to keep the lights on. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal was, the way it was orchestrated, it ensured that only people from a certain socioeconomic class could consistently worship. And so literally, poor people, they they couldn't consistently go to it. They were too poor to pray, at least in the way that they understood they were supposed to pray. So here comes Jesus, walking into his father's house. He looks around, and he sees everyone in their Sunday best. Only what he notices is not the people who are there. What he notices is who's not there. And this is what Jesus is always doing. He's always noticing that. And what he sees in the temple is he sees who is missing. And he remembers this verse in Isaiah. My house is to be a house of prayer for all peoples. So he tears the place down, kicks everybody out. He specifically goes after those people who would systematically exclude others and then look at what happens next. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. That's no mistake, right? I mean, this makes me want to cry a little bit. I mean, Jesus says, hey, you know those people who for a thousand years were told they're not welcome here? Hey, let them come. Let them come to God's house and find their healing here. Let, let them come and find that the voices that excluded them were never speaking for, for God. And it doesn't matter how famous they were. Let them find that the voices that excluded them, that God's not angry at them. He's angry at those voices. He's angry at the people who kept them out. Now, I'm, I'm sure there were people on that day who had leprosy who wanted to be healed. I'm sure there were like demon-possessed people. Jesus was healing them all the time. But it's the blind and the lame that he seeks out on this day in that city. Jesus is being disruptive. Now, as you can imagine, this did not sit particularly well with the folks who ran the temple. Look at verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They said to him, do you hear what they're saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you've prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is notable because this is one of the few moments where Jesus actually invites people to worship him as the Messiah. You'll note, most of the time he's like, no, don't tell anybody, just keep it to yourself, keep it to yourself. But here he's like, yes, bring it on. And his actions are not very subtle. To everyone in the culture, everyone who knew the history of Jerusalem, everyone who, who had any sort of national pride, you, they would have recognized what he is pointedly saying here. He's saying, do you all remember David. You remember David, man after God's own heart, hero of the nation, uh, the best king Israel ever had. Yeah, my kingdom is bigger than his. What I'm establishing is something that even David didn't understand, something that's for all peoples. And on this day, in the middle of the city of David, in the middle of God's temple, For the first time, things were as they should have been all along. I love that story. Um, You know, we're the church. The church is not the temple. Um, The church building is not the temple. The church building isn't even the church. The church is people. The church is a people group. But we do share an identity similar to the identity of the temple. Just like the temple was a house of prayer for all people. We, the church, are for all people. And it it, it. As Jesus said to us, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Jesus wasn't sent to just specific groups. Jesus wasn't sent to just the religious people. He was sent to all people, and he kept getting in trouble because he kept throwing the doors wide open to anyone and to everyone. And we who are followers of Jesus, we are sent in that same way to all people. And our primary job, as it seems to be defined by the life of Jesus, is to be this beacon of hope in the world, making God more accessible to people, not less. And if we believe that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, if if we believe in the deity of Jesus, then we have to recognize from the story how frustrated it makes our God when his people exclude others from the table of God. It just, it frustrates him. And when God sees that, that his people are doing that, he becomes disruptive and he starts overturning tables. You see this right away in Acts. So Jesus, he dies, he is risen from the dead, and then he ascends up into heaven, and he sends the Holy Spirit, and it starts the first church, and Acts captures the story of the early church. And for 10 chapters in Acts, the church is exclusively racist. They only allow Jewish believers or people who have converted to Judaism to be a part of things, And then the the last half of the the book of Acts is the story of God saying, no, I'm going to disrupt this, and I'm going to flip these tables, and through a series of events and through some persecution, what happens is God just scatters the church all over the world, and it's the best thing that ever happened for the gospel. See, it used to be that to experience the presence of God, you had to travel to the temple because that's where it was. And God says, well, that's not good enough for me. I'm going to scatter the church and I'm going to send all of my presence out through the people of God. I'm coming to you. And the way that God accomplishes this, uh, this reversal from a temple to a scattered people is us in this room, us who believe and follow Jesus. That is how God says to the world, I will come to you. There's a church in old Colorado City that I really like called uh, Sanctuary Church. And pastor there is a man named Eric and Sanctuary Church is very uh, good at reaching people from different walks of life. So you have like homeless people worshiping with like, you know, uh, middle class people. And it's kind of cool vibe there. And uh, Eric always tells the story of a woman who came to his church and decided to follow Jesus. And she had like really rough background. Uh, but on that day, she decided to start following Jesus. And at some point she's talking to Eric and Eric says, Hey, what made you make this decision? Was it the sermons? which, you know, all all us pastors secretly think, but uh, what she said was something absolutely stunning. She said, actually, it's the smell of this church. He said, well, tell me more. What do you mean? She said, hey, the first Sunday I was there, I sat behind this homeless guy, and he just, he reeked, like, B.O., everything. I just reeked. We did the thing where you stand up and you shake hands with people. And she shook hands with someone, and she's like, You know what you smell like after you've done a night of heavy drinking and just the alcohol seeping through your pores? I could just smell the alcohol seeping through her pores. She said, I had to go to the bathroom, and I go in the bathroom, and there's a line. And I, 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 as I go in there, I can smell that the woman who was in this bathroom before me had just vomited. And she told Eric, Hey, there was. There was something about your church that it just smelled like my life. And I figured if God can be present here with people like this, then maybe he can be in my life too, which is just breathtaking. Eric has a big heart. He's the sort of guy who is for all people. Um, But he always ends this story by saying how convicted that made him feel. Um, And I can relate to this as a pastor. He said, As a pastor, I have spent so much time trying to sanitize that smell out of my church. Because who wants a stinky church? But here it is the very smell of the presence of God to this woman, the smell of the gospel. Here's what Jesus is trying to get through to these religious leaders. He's, he's trying to show them, guys, you think you're keeping the temple clean. You, you think you're sanitizing God's temple. But you know what you're actually doing? You're keeping people whom God loves out of the story of God. And if I see that, I'm gonna flip some tables. I'm gonna disrupt that because God is for all people. It's easy to do, Right? We all do it. And it it comes from this very normal place, like very human place. Like we look at the spectrum and over here are the good people. And there are good people on earth, right? And they smell terrific. They do good stuff and we're like, wow, look at that. You're so great. And over here are the bad people. And there's bad people on earth, right? Um, And they're stinky, Sometimes literally, stinky. And, uh, you know, they do bad stuff. And, you know, we as humans, we look at the spectrum and we say, well, surely it is okay to have some standards, right? Surely a person could be a little bit too stinky for this whole God thing. That's a very human way of thinking. But we have to think like Jesus. Remember, Jesus is actually God. And so to Jesus, when he looks at the spectrum... Like, he doesn't see that good smelling, bad smelling. To Jesus, we all stink. He's perfectly holy, perfectly holy in a way that you and I can't even really conceive of. We all stink to Jesus. And you might look at this spectrum and say, well, hey, man, compared to you, Jonathan, I smell pretty good. But listen, I hate to say this to you, but compared to Jesus, you smell like dog vomit. I mean, this is a metaphor. Um... Jesus fought for our stinky dog vomit heart to sit at the table. And what he says is, listen, guys, I just. I want you to do the same and fight for someone else who stinks. Let me just hit you with two things that I think could be really powerful for us to take out of this story. Uh, two realizations. The first one is this. I think we each need to realize that Jesus is fighting for you. Like, genuinely. I'm sure there are times when you've felt excluded. Uh, Man, we all do, and we all have those thoughts like, hey, if people really knew me, if people really knew uh, what I'd done or what I think about or what I struggle with, man, they'd never let me in here. They'd never welcome me. They'd never love me. I'm here to tell you that's probably true. Those, Those people are out there. Jesus isn't one of those people. Those aren't God's people. Those are the people that Jesus keeps trying to disrupt. He's fighting for you. He's overturning tables for you. He knows you to your core. He knows your stink. His posture with you has always ever been, I'm so glad you're here. Sit by me. He's fighting for you. But conversely, we also need to hear this and realize this, that we, the church, those of us who say we follow Jesus, we are for All people. Just like the temple was, we are. That identity has been conveyed to us. We are the presence of God on earth. We are for all people. Growing up, I always heard uh, from religious adults the phrase, your body is a temple. Have you all heard that phrase before? And I always heard it in the context of uh, sexual purity, which is in the Bible. It comes right out of 1 Corinthians 6, Uh, where Paul, you know, what it says basically in the original language is, hey, your body's a temple, so stop fooling around with your girlfriend, Jonathan. Um, That's, I think, what it says. That's what I remember from high school, at least. (laughs) Um, Hey, that's legitimate. I mean, that's in there, and I don't want to minimize what Paul said, but what inadvertently happened to me as I hear that stuff is I started to associate with uh, this concept of the temple that it's primarily about personal purity. And that what it means to be the temple of God is that we have this job to do where we should all stop sinning. That's what it means to be the temple of God. That's not how Jesus understood the temple. Jesus seemed to view the temple as something different. He seemed to view it as this beacon on a hill, this announcement to all people that the loving and good God actually reigns on earth like he does in heaven. That you can have access to this God. That he is present and that you can draw near to him. That he is for you. That's what it means that we, the people of God, are the temple of God. And we carry around in our chest this disruptive announcement of good news that God says to the world, I am coming to you. You don't have to come to me. and I'm coming to you through Uh, the embodiment of my people. You know, I think there's a responsibility with that because of the identity that we have, that we have to always be asking these questions. Who's missing from the table? Who is excluded? You know, we carry around in our hearts not just this loving, sweet Jesus, but this disruptive Savior who is looking for tables to flip, looking for people who feel excluded. And I think, you know, a few questions that disrupt me that we need to ponder. One is this, who is stinky to you? Who is it that you are tempted to exclude, tempted to ignore, tempted to avoid because you don't like the things they struggle with? We all have those people. It doesn't matter how forward-thinking we are. There's someone on our list who is stinky to us, and we have to recognize Jesus flipped the tables for them. We can't withhold ourselves from them. We also have to ask this, it, you know, are, it's disruptive, but are we hiding because we fear being excluded? You know, is it like the picture, are we putting on a ton of cologne because we are afraid we're so stinky? we got to embrace, Jesus flipped the tables for us. He knows your stench, and you never know, what makes you stinky just might be, like for that lady, what makes the gospel come alive for someone else and finally believe God is for them. And so just like we need to not sanitize our group, we also need to not sanitize ourselves and cover it up. We just need to be ourselves. That's enough. I've been thinking about this all week. Um, I've really sensed this about our church. Like this, this sort of a message. Um, I sense that God has been disrupting us for years as a group. And I sense that most of us at Pulpit Rock, we're kind of in this place where it's like, hey, you know, I I guess I just don't really care about what people say. I'm going to stand with Jesus on this one. If Jesus says God is for all people, I'm going to stand with him on this. And what that means is we're going to increasingly try to be honest about who we are. We're going to increasingly try to not hide and not uh, cover it all up, but just say, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm struggling with. By God's grace, I'm, I'm moving forward. But it also means that that we're going to welcome all people and that we're going to throw the doors open. And certainly what that means is all people are welcome here when we gather. But I think more importantly, what that means as a church is we are going out to them. That that's the identity. Not that we've set up a new temple and anyone can come to it. But know that God has sent us out to find people who feel excluded, who may never walk through these doors and say to them, hey, listen, those voices that told you God wasn't for you, they weren't speaking for God through our actions and through our words that we proclaim to those who have been excluded, God is for you. I have this friend, David. He's a rock star. Um, Literally, he is actually a rock star. He stood here uh, a few weeks ago, and he rocked our faces off. It was amazing. Um, In his free time, uh, you may know, he travels in the brothels looking for kids to rescue from human trafficking. Um, What's remarkable to me about David is this. Is he's got some talents, he's got some gifts. But in a very non rock star sort of way, he's not using those rock star talents for himself. He dared to ask who's missing. And he leverages his ability, he leverages what he has to invite someone who's been excluded to the table. Uh, One of his songs, he, he has this lyric He says, I've got my microphone and my music. This voice I own, I'm going to use it. And that's all he's doing. He's just saying, this is what I have. I'm going to put it in play. He's the temple of God on earth looking for people missing from God's table. I had this friend, Cindy, she's an incredibly talented artist. Uh, she had this crazy idea the other day that it would be somehow empowering for the homeless people in our city to learn to express themselves through art. I would have never thought that. But she had that idea that it would convey dignity and life to people who don't often get that. And so she sat down with our friends at the Springs Rescue Mission who were very interested in this. And in about a month, she's going to go down there with some art supplies and some love. And she's going to start teaching the homeless community that their voice matters and they have something to express. She's the temple of God on earth looking for who's missing from God's table. I have this friend, Rob. He's an engineer, I think an electrical engineer. He's told me before, but I don't really understand it. Um, He knows this foster family who in the last year and a half has taken in five children, five and under. It's like a nightmare. Five children, (laughs) five and under. And to make matters worse, they're living in like a 1,000 square feet of house because their basement is unfinished, And so Rob has been given up his free time to go over there and get that basement wired and up to code so that that basement can be finished, and so that those kids can have some place to play, and those parents could have a couple of seconds of privacy. He is the temple of God on Earth, looking for people missing from God's table. I have these friends, Brian and Lisa. They are always opening their homes uh, up to people to stay with them. And I don't mean like a weekend or having people over for dinner, although they do that too. Uh, Like they recently, most recently, invited this single mom and her 10-year-old son to come live with them. I don't know what your house is like. That would be disruptive for me. And I don't mean like for a week I mean like a few months, and they just faithfully walked with this family as they struggled with some really hard stuff because they are the temple of God on earth looking for who's missing from God's table. I have this friend, Jessica, and she's in this networking group of professional women, And she convinced these women uh, to get involved with Partners in Housing, which is an organization that works with uh, families like on the verge of homelessness. And most of these families, they have good parents who are hardworking, but they just don't have a lot of job experience or the right job experience, and they don't know how to go about getting that. And Jessica noticed, hey, we, uh, this group of professional women, we have job experience. And we know how to get jobs and hold jobs down. And so they're going to start mentoring these families through the steps of stuff like writing a resume, succeeding at a job interview, and just going through that whole process of getting a secure job. She's the temple of God on earth looking for people missing. There's a couple I just met, Lydia and Kevin. And they decided one summer uh, that they wanted to start making pancakes on their front porch because who doesn't like pancakes? You'd be surprised. I mean, people were like, hey, what are you like selling something? Is this some sort of a scheme or what is this about? But they were persistent. They just kept inviting neighbors to their front porch to eat pancakes with them. And they kept at it, and they kept at it. And now everyone on their street participates, and it has dramatically changed the environment on their street. It's open, and it's giving, and people know each other's story. They know what's going on inside each other's homes. It's like their actual neighbors, which I think is in the Bible somewhere. They're the temple of God on earth looking for people missing from God's table. I have these friends, Kevin and Lori, And every Easter, they do this thing. Easter is a big deal for us at church. Uh, They do this thing, not at church, but at their home. Uh, They look for people who have nothing to do on Easter. And they so believe that Jesus Christ has actually risen that they fill their home with as many people as they can fit just to celebrate that. There were like 50 people there in April. These are all people who have the Easter free. It's just another Sunday for them. But they feed them and they celebrate and they make this a day of good news for people for whom it's just another Sunday. The temple of God on earth looking for people missing from God's table. This is not an exaggeration. I could go on all morning. I have like 20 more stories about people who sit in these seats who are doing stuff like that. You know what I love about these stories? I love so many things about these stories. One of the things I love most about these stories is none of those people ask my permission. Like, that matters. None of these people were like, is this okay if I do this sort of thing? No, they just embrace this role, this identity, as I'm one of God's people for all people. And I love that each of these people, they, just, they looked and they said, well, what do I have? Who's missing? And the intersection of those two things is the presence of God on earth. Some of those examples, they're not big, hard things. They're just stepping into stuff around them. You know what I think I love most about those stories is in each of them, I see the disruptive Jesus flipping some tables. What would happen if just we just really kept leaning in to our identity as the temple of God, sent by God to all people? Jesus fought for your seat at the table. Listen, your seat is secure. He fought for you, and now what he's wanting to do, no matter how stinky you are, is just put you out there to fight for someone else. So what if, just like Jesus, we started noticing who's not here? We started noticing who maybe feels like God isn't for them. Let me ask you a question that only, genuinely, only Jesus can help you answer this question. The disruptive Jesus who lives inside you can help you answer this question. Who is missing from the table? Who thinks or feels like maybe the love of God is not for them, this whole God stuff, it's just not for someone like them. Jesus who lives inside of you notices that person. And what's in you is disruptive and there are some tables to flip in our world. And you know what I think about this church? Like I see it, it's a challenge as a leader just to stay ahead of y'all because you're flipping tables all the time and you're stepping into this stuff. But I think the idea is that we're not gonna rest because there are a lot more tables to flip. And the Savior that lives in us is not resting. He's noticing who's missing. So I wanna ask you to just go to him with this question this morning. Who's missing from the table? Lord, We are so thankful that you flipped that table for us. God, we confess with our human eyes, we miss it all the time. We don't always see who it is that's missing. Would you just show us? Just show us those people. Enlighten our heart to see what you see. Amen. Can we just take a couple minutes and just go to our disruptive savior with this question, who is missing?
1: Jonathan, thank you for that reminder uh, for the ways that God has fought for our place at the table and just his invitation uh, to us to be the temple of God on earth, looking for people who are missing. We wanted to end the service today with something uh, of an application of of just what Jonathan talked about. We have teams that are heading out the first week of June from Pulpit Rock to both Haiti and Ethiopia. I want to invite them to come in. Uh, If you're here in the room already, would you stand up and just kind of gather at the front of the stage? We wanted to have a time of just prayer for these folks as they do really what Jonathan just described. Uh, They get to go with their actions and with their words and declare to people that God is for them. And they get to be the temple of God on earth. We get to be the temple of God. All of us do, but they get to do it. in Haiti and Ethiopia in a couple weeks uh, alerting people and inviting people to the table who are missing and so we wanted to to just pray for them and send them out if you are in community with uh, these folks I mean I know we all are but if you friends, family, small group uh, maybe you're in a Sunday morning class with someone up here I invite you to come up and just put your hands on them and I want to invite the rest of us just to stand but feel free to come forward so the the team that's headed to Ethiopia is going to partner with the church uh, that we've had a relationship with the last few years we've been learning from about how to care for orphans and for widows and they're sending a team of doctors and medical professionals to do some uh, to do some medical things in the village and the church is going to invite some of their village and and people around they're going to do some training as well. But God is at work in that place and this group of people gets to come alongside what God is already doing and to encourage and affirm and breathe life into and to walk beside this church uh, in Ethiopia. This team from Haiti is headed to continue a relationship that we've built with an organization there in Haiti that is just present, who's uh, still doing some relief work, uh, but is also doing uh, a number of different things in the villages with strategic village champions and church leaders, and they get to come alongside to breathe life and to encourage and be part of what God is already doing in that place. And so will you join me just as I pray for these folks? God, we thank you for the ways that you are ascending God, that you sent Christ to us and you send us out. I'm thankful for the ways that these folks uh, get to walk in community with one another, with arms linked, to join and be part of the work that you're doing in Haiti and in Ethiopia. God, I ask that you would prepare uh, what they're walking into. Would you prepare their own hearts would you walk beside their families uh, and things that are left unfinished and to the side as they go? God, as they work together, as they uh, listen to you, would you draw them close to your heart? Would you open their eyes to see you at work? Would you open your eye, Would you open their eyes to see people who are just missing from your table? Would they eat and drink deeply of you? And with the overflow of that, just be what they get to be part of in those places as so we ask that you would go with them we thank you for their yes we ask that you would uh, help them behold you in new ways amen I'm going to invite these folks to stay up here and uh, I just want to close this in a benediction just some good words and in light of what you guys can stay if you want or you can go Here's our, here's our closing benediction. May we, as the sent people of God, have eyes to see who is missing from our tables. And would our own acceptance and invitation to God's table, would it fuel our mission to make sure that all are invited to come and to eat and to drink deeply? Go with God.